Our passion reading for this evening is from the third section, which is a synopsis of all the Gospels. So it's taken from all four Gospel accounts, and it's entitled, The Palace of the High Priest. Those who had arrested Jesus brought him to the high priest's house where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Peter followed him afar off, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known to the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So that other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, and he spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. He went in and sat with the servants to see the end. He was warming himself at the fire that they had kindled in the middle of the courtyard. Meanwhile, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking evidence that might make the case for a death sentence, but they could not find any. Many bore witness against him, but their statements did not agree. Two stepped forward and said, We heard him say, I shall destroy this temple made with hands, and after the beginning of the third day, I shall build another, not with hands. But even on this point, their evidence did not agree. Then the high priest stood up and moved to the center, and he put a question to Jesus. Do you have no answer? What is this evidence that they have against you? But Jesus was silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest put a question to him and said, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God's power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garments and said, Do we still need any more witnesses? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your opinion? And they all declared that he was liable for death. Then some of them began to spit on him, and they blindfolded him, and they struck him. And they said to him, Prophesy to us, O Christ, who is it that struck you? The guards beat him as they took him away. Meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and one of the maidservants of the high priest came and saw Peter warming himself. And she looked at him closely as he sat in the light of the fire, and she said, You also were along with that man from Nazareth, that Jesus. Peter denied it, and he said, I do not know what you mean. And he went out into the forecourt. Another man Maid servant saw him there and said to those who were standing around, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter denied it again with an oath, I do not know that man. A little later, those standing around said to Peter, Surely you are one of them. You're a Galilean. Your accent gives you away. And Peter took an oath, calling down a curse upon himself, I do not know that man. And immediately, while he was still speaking, The cock crowed a second time, and the Lord turned and looked on Peter. And then Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter broke down, and he went out, and he wept bitterly. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests with the elders and the scribes held the court session with all the Sanhedrin. Then they bound him and led him away, and they turned him over to Pilate. Then Judas, who had betrayed him, when he saw what he had, that he was condemned, was sorry and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned. I have betrayed innocent blood. 
And they said to Judas, well, what is that to us? That's your affair. And Judas threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, and he departed. And he went and hanged himself. The chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. And that is why to this day the field has been called the field of blood. In this way was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, They took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by the children of Israel, and they gave him, or gave them, for the potter's field. This ends the reading of the Passion account for this evening. Well, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Tonight we continue with the Lenten sermon series that I've been going through, the glory and the cross, the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And tonight the fruit that we're going to focus in is the fruit of the Spirit, which is goodness. In order to do that, we're going to focus our attention on Matthew's Gospel, the 26th chapter, beginning at verse 57. And so I read these words to you again, or I read them to you now. Some you will have heard from that synopsis reading. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had been assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. And he entered and he sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and he said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men bring against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they replied. And then they spit in his face and they struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? This is our text. In the name of our good and perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, dear fellow believers in him. One often hears at a funeral the comment made about the deceased, he or she was such a good person. Why do you suppose that that comment is made about the deceased? Is it that we don't want to speak ill of the dead? Are we just simply being charitable in death? Are we trying to ease the grief of those who are mourning? Might it be that the person actually lived like a good life and was a good person? Might it be that there is even an underlying belief that people are received into heaven 
because they're good people. The Bible says there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Even Jesus said, he says of himself, why do you call me good? No one is good except God himself. Look at the evil that was perpetrated by Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. They hold a kangaroo court. They trump up the charges against Jesus with all kinds of, well, with a couple of false accusations. And as a result, a perfectly innocent man is condemned to death so that they might protect their lofty positions and stature and power. Consider the evil perpetrated in our world today. Children are molested. Teenage girls are sold as sex slaves. Women's shelters are filled with battered women. People's possessions and identity are stolen. Unborn children are killed through abortion. Bombs are detonated in the name of a god. Radical groups rise up in civil unrest, destroying property and beating people. Smear campaigns ruin a person's reputation. Gossip and bullying and mean-spirited behavior leads to the bullied feeling terrible about him or herself and even sometimes considering suicide. In families, they're divided oftentimes because of self-centered attitudes and me-oriented behavior. The list could go on and on, couldn't it? And it gets downright depressing. But before we are quick to think, well, none of these examples describe me, let's remember the words of the Bible. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, and yet, with that word in mind, there is still kind of a goodness in the world, isn't there? I mean, let's return to the scene of Caiaphas with Jesus in the Sanhedrin. If we were an impartial observer, who might we observe to be the good person in that room? Might we conclude that it be Caiaphas, that he is the good person? I mean, after all, he's simply adhering to to Jewish laws and traditions. His reasoning certainly seems solid, rational, and pragmatic. Is it not better that one person, one rebel rouser, who's jeopardizing the existence of a whole nation, is it not better for that one person to be sacrificed than all of us be sacrificed? And we nod our head in agreement with all the rest of the Sanhedrin. And we think, yes, Caiaphas, this is a good plan, a good argument. I mean, people do good for many good reasons, don't they? I mean, it's the right thing to do. My parents raised me to respect other people, to do good to other people. I mean, aren't we taught we want to, be, we want to treat others the way that we want to be treated? 
Or we'll hear people say, well, I just saw someone who needed help, and I did what I felt was right. I mean, that's the way we're, we're raised. Love makes the world go around, right? Being good to others makes me feel good about myself. I might even be respected a little bit more, and, and I do good because it might even get me into heaven, or maybe a little better karma, if you're into Hinduism. You know, we're told throughout our life, aren't we, that if we're naughty, Santa won't come tonight. He knows if you are good or bad, so be good for goodness' sake. I mean, goodness is rewarded. Good choices usually result in positive feedback. And so, yes, as we look around us in our society, we see that there is a kind of goodness in this world. And thank God there is. Eldon Wissite writes, he's a former Lutheran, he's a pastor. I don't know if he's passed on to be with the Lord yet or not, but he writes, Goodness is a berry in the orchard of fruits of the Spirit. Unfortunately, there's another berry called goodness in the lives of people. There's a goodness berry that grows on the bush of self-righteousness. Though these two berries may look a lot alike at first glance, they grow on very different bushes. All of us want to look good in the eyes of others. From childhood, we're told, be good and do good. And we know that God has told us to be good and to do good. But this is the berry that is the fruit of the law. Might some of our own goodness be fruits of the law? Might our goodness be motivated by desiring to gain credit for ourselves, to make up for some wrong that we've done in the past? Might it be because we see some personal pragmatic reason for doing good? That maybe it's in our best interest to act in goodness? Or maybe our goodness flows from the attitude that will gain us brownie points with God. And yes, might it even flow that we flow from God's command, do good, the law motivation. Caiaphas thought that he was doing good. But his motivation really did grow from his own self-righteousness, his holier-than-thou attitude. Sure, Caiaphas could rationalize that he was trying to preserve the religion of the people. The questions he asked of Jesus were intended to flesh out the truth. It was his duty to protect the flock from error, especially from a deluded lunatic who had a Messiah complex. He probably felt pretty good about his actions and decisions. But his goodness was rooted in conceit, pride, and self-preservation. Several years ago, Paul McCartney toured the United States. An NBC reporter asked him, I've heard that you get up every day to justify yourself to the world. Is that true? McCartney answered, well, yes. Doesn't everybody? And then he added, I've commented to my wife, when, when will I have done enough? When will I have done enough? That's the goodness of the law speaking. That's how a person lives and tries to justify himself or herself or try to find meaning in life 
when that person imagines a world without a gracious, forgiving God. There are many good people who live a good life. There's good parents. There's obedient children. There's devout friends. There's faithful spouses. There's responsible citizens. There's diligent students. There's hardworking employees. There's thoughtful neighbors. And yep, at their funeral, we might even overhear someone whisper, boy, was he ever a nice person, a good person. Oh, she was such a good and giving person. But their goodness does not mean that they'll find a place reserved for them in heaven. Tragically, there are many good people who are in hell. The writer to the Hebrews says, without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God. But hear this too. Even with faith, and I'm speaking to people who have faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, even with faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our good deeds do not merit us a place in heaven. Did you hear that? Our good deeds do not merit us a place in heaven. As the Bible reminds us, it is by grace, God's grace that you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. And again, St. Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified freely by His grace that comes through the redemption of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Real goodness, then, in us, flows from the goodness of God towards us. No one is good except God alone, Jesus said. There's no evil. There's no evil intent in God. He always does what is right and good for his creation, and especially for his church. God creates the heavens and the earth and all that abides in them, and he declares what? This is very good. Again, St. Paul states, for everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. How blessed you and I are to, to live in a good creation, good even after the fall. I mean, how wonderful it is for us to live in an awe-inspiring, awe-inspiring world where a fruitful creation provides us with all that we need for, for our daily living. It's a world in which we are able to enjoy being blessed by family and friends. God's creation is good because He is good. And even when we sin, God is good. Adam and Eve willfully disobeyed God and they brought the curse of sin upon themselves and all of creation. And yet God in His goodness and love promised them and us that He would provide a Savior who would rectify the problem, redeeming us from the curse of sin and death. The gospel is God's good news. And in His goodness, God sent His Son to become the perfect and blameless sacrifice so that we could be forgiven of our sins. You see, God does not want anyone to perish 
but to come to the knowledge of the truth, to come to repentance. And it's the goodness of God, the Bible says, that leads us to repentance. The Bible invites you and me. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Yes, all of you who are weary and burdened by your sin, all you who are weary and burdened by the realities of sin's consequences in your life, all of you who are weary and burdened by this most current pandemic, come and feast on the goodness of God. Heed the Lord's invitation and be embraced by his love and his mercy, his forgiveness. Focus your eyes of faith on the resurrected Christ who's overcome sickness and death. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. His goodness is so very personal for each and every one of us because, you see, we are the recipients of his benevolent ways. and I mean, we are the recipients of his goodness. We're the recipients of his love and his mercy and forgiveness. And, and we live in his goodness every single day of our lives. And as a result, living in his goodness prompts a variety of responses from us. I mean, one of the things that his goodness does is it, it means that we can enter his courts with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We can give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good and his love endures forever, says the psalmist. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Again, as Psalm, Psalm 107 says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love for you and me endures forever. And then, even as we experience trials and tribulations in life, when our good God seems to have abandoned us, seems to be deaf to our prayer, seems to be indifferent to what's going on in our world, we can remember the words of St. Paul who says, and when we know that we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so even in the midst of trials and tribulations, we know that our good God will work things for our good. And we can live each and every day with that promise made to us in his holy word. And as we live in God's goodness, the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of goodness in us. The goodness that St. Paul speaks of in Galatians is actually a goodness that can be defined as generosity that springs from kindness. It's generosity that springs from kindness. God's selfless generosity towards us in, his, in our Savior Jesus causes us to be selflessly generous, abundantly sacrificial, in the way that we interact with other people. And so St. Paul counsels 
let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. But not only are we to live such good lives among one another and do good things for the family of believers, but St. Peter says live such good lives among pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so God sends us to one another to do good things for one another, to to selfishly be generous with one another, to abundantly be sacrificial with one another as we share our lives, our possessions, our gifts, our abilities with one another to enrich one another's lives. And then he sends us into the world to be selflessly generous and abundantly sacrificial in doing good things for even those people who do not share our love for Jesus. And there's countless ways that we can show that goodness of God in the lives of others. And so we pray tonight, O Holy Spirit, we thank you for your goodness toward us. May your goodness live in us. May may your selflessly generous, abundantly sacrificial way be manifested in our lives. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.